0: Hey, welcome to PT Snacks podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, for one, I just want to say welcome to the show. But two, what you need to know about the show is that it's meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow your fundamentals, but in bite-sized segments of time because not all of us really have all the time in the world, right? Now, last week we talked about the shoulder labrum and the purpose of it, what exactly it is, and What can go wrong with it, essentially, and so we're going to expand on that this episode on shoulder instability. Overall, we're going to talk about you know what exactly shoulder instability is, like some factors that can be involved in what can cause that in the first place, and what types of instability injuries typically occur, and then we'll talk a little bit about common shoulder instability assessments that you'll see in the clinic. As I mentioned before, there's a million shoulder special tests out there, and the specificity and sensitivity is not always all that great. But again, if you combine your understanding of how the shoulder joint, meaning the glenohumeral joint, should typically operate, and you're comparing side to side just to see if there's a difference. See if that patient might be someone who's more predisposed to ligamentous laxity, um, et cetera, et cetera. You're trying to use your best clinical judgment with the best evidence based, the best evidence based practice there is, and then also what works best for your patient. So combine them all together. But we're gonna go ahead and dive into different things that can cause shoulder instability. So other than the labrum. You know, which can help to add stability. There's other things that are in that joint, right? So you have your glenohumeral ligaments, you have the osseous wony formation, you have muscles, you have a capsule, you have all kinds of things that work together to help make sure that the shoulder is not only mobile, but it's stable as well. And so examples of passive structures might be more like the osseous structures the labrum, the capsule. Keep in mind that the bone, you know, so the humeral head on the glenoid surface, it doesn't cover as much on that dumb classic ball and socket joint. It's not like the hip where it's a lot more stable because we also need it to be able to move a bunch of different ways, right? And now any labrum that has been injured can also be an instability injury as well. So now on where the shoulders is we can take a look at it as like passive or dynamic movements or, you know, where exactly the issue is going on. So dynamic mean more of the muscles themselves and also even just the movement of those muscles. So your clinical ex- should consist of all of those. Now, some people are more predisposed to this based on their age, so younger people are more likely to get certain types of tears, their gender. While women tend to be a little bit more ligamentously lax, men in the research tend to be involved in activities that can cause more traumatic injury. so keep that in mind as you're reading the research. Um, as I mentioned before, can be more congenital, someone can be more ligamentously lax, or they might be doing certain sports like overhead throwing motions repetitively that predispose them or discern trauma. And then that trauma itself can be some sort of event that happened one time. It was, it was enough of an insult of an injury that it broke down the structures that create stability, whatever those are, or it can just be a repetitive micro trauma over time that creates over time an instability in the shoulder. So the shoulder itself will see a lot of different options for instability. So anterior instability is going to be the most common that you'll see, but there it is possible to have posterior instability and then multidirectional instability for those lucky few. So anterior, when you think about the arthrokinematics of the shoulder, when you put your arm in abduction and external rotation, just like you're getting ready to throw, that puts more stress on the anterior portion of the capsule and just more stress on the anterior structures in general. And so repetitive motion like this, overhead throwing, can eventually with time cause issues with this depending on what structures are involved or if there's injury in those areas. It could happen with direct contact with like a posterior posterior lateral force on the arm, which again causes that humeral head to shift anteriorly and put more stress on that. If it dislocates, then we're worried about several things. So, if it's enough instability where it basically glides past the glenoid rim, we want to be worried about Bankart lesions, which can happen in trauma cases, like ninety-seven percent. Um, and that's basically where there's an avulsion of the anteroinferior capsulolabral attachment, or Hill-Sachs is where it basically like a lesion to the humeral head, a little bit more bony. Now, posterior is not as common, and that's because the orientation of the glenoid is is more shifted forward, um, to be exact, more like 30% or so. And so a uh, force directly posterior, often there's a bony backdrop, so it doesn't tend to happen quite as much. But just imagine... If someone has a fall with their arm extended out in front of them in an internal rotation, how that might stress the posterior portion of the capsule. Or just picture a football lineman who's putting their arms out and there's a massive human right in front of them charging towards them. They're trying to stop with their, their shoulder. Um, that can cause some posterior instability. Now, for those who have multidirectional instability, you can check for this in several ways, and that's just meaning that there's at least more than two directions that their shoulder joint is instable. So with this patient, they might have more generalized laxity, which you can assess with Byton's hypermobility scale index. And I would encourage you to look that up if you're a little rusty. It's basically like nine different points for different portions of the body where you can see if they're hypermobile. But... They also, with multidirectional, it has to include inferior instability, which you can assess this with sulcus test, where the patient's just sitting there, their arms in their lap, they're in a neutral adduction position. That's the fancy term for what I just described, arms resting on lap. And then you, as the tester, are basically pulling down on the distal aspect of the humerus with one hand, just to see if there's a tethering of skin between the lateral acromion and the humerus which is basically just a widened subacromial space. And if there was a sulcus sign, you would see quite a big gap there, which you can assess side to side, right? This is thought to be assessing more of the integrity of the superior glenohumeral ligament and the coracohumeral ligament. So you typically do this in sitting. It's a little bit easier to do. There's several other tests that she can do in sitting, um, but there is a big camp in um, the clinical practice guidelines in favor of just assessing things in supine, so the patient's more relaxed, and also part of their shoulder is stabilized by the mat. And to be exact, that would be the Gerber and Gans and McFarland at all camp. So when you're assessing the shoulder, you can do kind of like a load and shift test, where you're basically just gliding the humeral head in anterior and posterior directions, which really is more anteromedial and posterior lateral directions, so that you're in line with the glenoid. But um, you're just trying to see there's different grades depending on how much translation occurs and if it glides past the glenoid rim on whether or not it relocates when you remove the force or if it doesn't, which you probably wouldn't see in a PT clinic. But you can assess that about like zero, zero to 30 degrees abduction of the shoulder, 30 to 60 and at 90 degrees for the superior middle and inferior glenohumeral ligaments um, posterior especially is tested at ninety degrees because there's less thickening of the capsule than like the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. Now these are both translatory tests. You're basically just seeing how much the humeral head glides in these positions. But for some of the more subtle, subtle anterior instability patients, like your overhead athletes, you might have to do more of a provocation test. And so there's a test called the subluxation relocation test. And essentially what you're doing is the patients in supine, you're going to put them in that throwing position where they're like at their in-range external rotation at 90 degree shoulder abduction and then you're basically, as the tester, going to add a little bit of an anterior subluxation force to see if there's reproduction of symptoms. And that patient might express apprehension, which would be a positive apprehension test, because if they've dislocated it before, they're worried about it happening again. But then you, as a tester, if it if it you're able to reproduce their symptoms or their apprehension. Then when you add a posterior lateral force, which would be more of like a Job's relocation test, and it reduces symptoms, then that would also be a positive as well. Now, if it's not positive at 90 degrees shoulder abduction, you can test it at 110 and 120 degrees abduction. And this is just thought to add more contact between the undersurface of the supraspinatus tendon and then also the posterior superior glenoid surface. All right, so... These are several tests that you can look at. Again, you're more likely to see an anterior instability patient than, than posterior. Although you might see multidirectional, but make sure that when you're assessing the the patient, you're taking a look at who the patient is. Are they likely to be this person that's more like lax? Did they have a trauma? What direction was their trauma? What did it? Arthur kinematically do to the shoulder to add a force where I can assess that aspect of the shoulder. And then just see if if you're reproducing their symptoms. Are they having apprehension? Are they having a lot more laxity compared to their non-involved shoulder? Or if they're more ligamentously lax as a person, they might both be kind of loosey-goosey, but one's more in pain. So be sure and take that all into account. I'm sure we'll build more on this concept in the future, but by now you should understand what instability can look like and how you assess it. If you guys have any questions, definitely be sure and reach out at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Or you can follow me on Instagram at ptsnacks, which would be pt underscore snacks. There's a lot of information below in the show notes where you can find out more information or on the website, or if there's a topic that you want me to cover in the future, be sure and let me know as well. And if uh, you are in need of some CEUs that are easily accessible, you could do sitting at home in your pajamas with a cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, MedBridge has thousands of options of CEUs, of webinars, and then even an HEP app for your patients where if you're treating patients and you need to send them home with stuff this has like videos and a link that the patient can follow it's really user-friendly I use it myself there is a a promo code ptsnackspodcast if you are interested for $175 off an entire year subscription which is insane and if your license renewal is coming up definitely the one for you so check it out below in the show notes and until next time